All right. Good morning. It's been a while since I've had the opportunity to sing with the church, and um, man, that was that was something special just to hear all of you. I don't know if this week was different from other weeks, but I was just sitting down there, and I'm like, man, I almost want to grab my cell phone out and just film it and just to remember it. So thank you, Josiah. Thank you, worship team, uh, for working hard and putting that together. Um, just such a blessing to be able to sing with all of you. The last several weeks, one of the topics that we've been discussing has been the issue of God's sovereignty. And we're going to be in John chapter 12. So you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 12, starting in verse 36b. It's the beginning of the paragraph there. But when we talk about sovereignty, the issue of sovereignty causes us to ask questions. Whenever we come to the topic of sovereignty, there's always a, a question that, or, that either is causing us to think about it or there's a question that comes out of discussing it. So far, some of the questions that we've asked are, is God sovereign over my personal suffering? When we looked at the story of Lazarus dying and, and what that meant for Mary, for Martha, is God sovereign in those moments when I am personally suffering. He is. And we were comforted. We've talked about, is God sovereign over the rulers of this world who plot, who have plans of darkness? When we talked about that, it was the week that everything had happened in Ukraine, and we're, we're asking the question, is God sovereign when all of the priests, the, the high priests, all of the Pharisees have put themselves, they've pitted themselves against God. Is God sovereign in those moments? He is. And we were comforted. But this morning, our focus on sovereignty causes us to ask what is often seen as a harder question. Is God sovereign over unbelief? If God is sovereign... Why did Israel reject Jesus, his chosen people? If God is sovereign, why do people go to hell? If God is sovereign and people still go to hell, can God really claim he came to save? If God is sovereign and came to save, how can he still choose to condemn? Is God's sovereignty a comfort or a curse? Those are hard questions. They're questions that, that if we could, we would probably avoid them altogether. We like talking about God's sovereignty when it's issues of salvation. It's God's election when he chooses us. When we respond to that call, we talk about that sovereignty we talk about God's sovereignty when all things work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, we're fine with that sovereignty. But what about the sovereignty of our passage this morning where they could not believe lest they be healed? This is the dark side of sovereignty. This is the part that we don't want to discuss, but the Bible talks about it, and so will we. Here's my personal goal while we're going through this. One of the biblical principles that we, we really try to hold to, or, or a, a preaching principle, um, 
is to, to stay on the line. Okay, if we were to think about this element of staying on the line of, of what is scripture, of what we are meant to do when we are preaching. I don't want to say more than what God's word says, and which would look like legalism. Oh, well, this is what God's standard is, but I'm going to say I have a higher standard through legalism and say more. Now, the reality is you are not saying something higher. Anytime that you're doing legalism, you're actually taking away from God's law because man's law is never higher than God's law. But we could try to do that, or we could try to say less than God's word, which would be liberalism. Of like, wow, God's word is really harsh on this one topic, but I really don't want to, I don't want to say that. So let me, let me soften it. Let me take off some of the sharp points of this passage. Let me make it a little easier. My personal goal is faithfulness. Is to preach what I truly believe God's word is saying. Understanding that the result, the human result of preaching truth might be something that I would never want. Because there's a chance that you hearing this message this morning, you might say, if that's the God of the Bible, I want nothing to do with this. That maybe through this message, your heart is actually going to be harder than when you came. And that's where I need to just trust and be faithful to his word and faithful to God's sovereignty that he is accomplishing what he has set out to do, even if that means the hardening of hearts. Faithfulness to God's word far surpasses false human results, so I'm going to preach it. But a general goal for us, what I want is for us to see God and be humbled before his total sovereignty. Not just a piece of it, but to see all of God's sovereignty and even if we don't understand it, to, to choose to trust it. I want us to choose obedience to God's sovereign mission and not succumb to apathetic fatalism. I want us to obey. I want us to praise the God whose sovereign command is eternal life. Trust, obey, praise. Here's the big idea. Man's unbelief remains under God's sovereignty and does not discredit nor contradict Christ's mission of salvation. Longer big idea this morning. You have it written on the handout. If you have one of those, let me say it again. Man's unbelief remains under God's sovereignty and does not discredit nor contradict God's mission of of salvation. So let's look now at the first verses, starting at the second part of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. When Jesus had said these things, he departed. Well, what things did he say? Well, let's remember the context. Let's look at verse 35 in the first half of verse 36. This is what it says. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the, dark, uh, walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Christ gave a charge and a warning. The charge was walk in the light while it's here. Believe in the light. Believe in me. 
The warning is, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness is lost. The, dar- the light is leaving. Christ's words prov- proved true because the light did depart from them. They were walking in darkness. And he says, it says here that um, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And then we come to verse 37, and it says, Though he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. If you've been with us uh, as we've been going through this series, then, then what verse does verse 37 maybe call, recall to your mind that we've already looked at a lot in the Gospel of John? This, this verse that though he had done so many signs... They did not believe. Well, John gives us a gift in that he tells us the purpose of his book. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, This is why I wrote. This is what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's the problem when we compare these two verses? What is John saying? Hey, the whole point of why I'm telling you about these signs is so that you may believe. Well, look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs, not just the seven we have, so many signs, they still did not believe. The verse in our passage is the exact opposite result of John's purpose. These Jews are the antithesis of John's goal. This isn't a new response. This has been happening for the last 12 chapters. They keep on rejecting him. This is what John 1 verse 10 talked about, 10 11, that it said that the light was in the world, but it was rejected. The question has to be asked, how does the Jews' unbelief not discredit Christ? How does the response of the Jews not cause us to doubt who Christ is? It's a logical argument. It's saying, John, all right, we we understand your goal is for me to read the things that I never saw, to learn the words that I never heard, to meet the person that I never got to interact with. Your goal is to tell me all of those things so that I can believe in who this person is and in believing I might have light. Great. That makes sense. John, just a question. How did the other people who did, who actually saw, who actually met, who actually heard his words, how did they respond to Jesus? Well, that's a logical question. If you're expecting me to respond by reading differently from the people who saw it, see, this is where where skeptics look at and say, listen, Jews didn't receive him. How are you going to receive him when even the people who had the most preparation, who were waiting the longest, who had everything set up for them, who had been chosen by God, if they didn't respond and they didn't think Jesus was God, you think you're going to 2,000 years later? The great thing is, though, that John doesn't hide from the question. 
John doesn't bring, uh, say, you know what? Oh, man, that is kind of difficult to answer. So you know what? Let me go back. I, now that I'm in chapter 12, I really think I should go back and edit some of the first chapters because people are going to be asking questions that are really hard to answer. So let's just go back and just talk about the times that Jesus, people did receive him. Then the conclusion of my book, everyone's going to be fine with that. But he doesn't. He leans into, wait, why did the Jews not believe? How does the Jews' unbelief not discredit Christ? The reason it doesn't discredit Christ is because their unbelief was part of God's plan. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This passage is difficult for us to understand, but this is the part of God's sovereignty that, that we don't like to talk about, but it's reality. John didn't shy away from it. Their unbelief fulfilled what had been foretold. Let's look at what was fulfilled. Throughout the entire passage, I want you to notice two themes that we are going to keep on seeing, both the hearing and the seeing. What they, that the revelation throughout all of this, you're going to keep on seeing these things, and, and we've already seen it. Though they saw the signs, they didn't believe. Now the context where this quote is coming from is Isaiah 53, verse 1. But right before Isaiah 53, we're talking about the suffering servant. It's a messianic prophecy. It's talking about Jesus who would be despised and rejected. But this is what it says at the end of chapter 52. Behold, my servant, Jesus, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. We talked about that last week. And shall be exalted. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For what that which has been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Many nations. But, but look what it says. That which has not been told them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. Which then goes to the question, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The question that Isaiah is bringing up is, wait a second. The nations are seeing? The kings are are hearing, and yet Israel is rejecting? Because that's what Isaiah's been about. Israel keeps on rejecting, and he's like, wait a second. Who, who has this been revealed to? Who, who's hearing? Who's understanding? Who's seeing the arm of God, the power? Think about what we've been seeing in John. What happened at the beginning of our passage last week? Who came and asked to see Jesus. The Greeks, the Gentiles, the world, they want to see Jesus. And at the end of the passage, who's rejecting Jesus? The Jews. They're walking in darkness. 
John is showing that this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. This is what was meant to be. But this causes us to ask the next question, why did the Jews not believe? The majority of your Bible was written to the Jews for them to know who was coming. All of this portion is that. But they didn't believe. Why did the Jews not believe? Look at verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, and lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. They didn't believe because their eyes were blind. Their ears, their heart was hard because they did not turn to God and be healed. Now we're going to spend a little time on this issue because this verse brings up some of the hardest questions that we have regarding God's sovereignty. And, and, and how that works when it comes to issues of unbelief. And, and I think it's something that we really need to address. Because our question is, how is God sovereign over unbelief? How does God's sovereignty work when it comes to unbelief? See, we believe that God is sovereign. We believe he is in control. But how is he in control of this? This is a really hard topic. There's something inside of us that struggles with this concept. The reason it's so hard is because we feel like we need to find some way to justify God, to justify what we see as unjust. To explain something that we think is counter or contradictory to his nature. So generally, generally when we ask this question, there's, there's a fault line or a division between two views, and both views relate to, we're, we're going to kind of, um, uh, I'm going to present them in the cause and effect kind of way, of, of trying to view, look at these views, this fault line of cause and effect. See, the first view of God's sovereignty over unbelief is a result of rejection. That's the first view, result of rejection. The cause, then, is they, the unbeliever, rejected Jesus. That's the cause. The effect or result, God hardened their hearts. He gave them over to darkness. Now, there is biblical support for this view. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the, book, uh, of, of, of the Bible. What happens right at the beginning? God creates paradise. Mankind has no sin. Humanity is in perfect relationship with God. But God at that point gives them a warning. He says, look, I'm giving you everything you see around you, but there's this one tree over here. The day that if you eat from that tree on that day, you shall surely die. What happens? They eat of it. Well, what is that? That's rebellion. That's rejection. That, that's turning away from God. That is the fall. Where all of humanity, then at that, from that point on, suffered under death. We were separated from God. Now here's what I want you to think, though. In that moment, when we have there, so the cause was man's rebellion. The result was 
death. Not physical death yet, but spiritual death. And then there's another tree that's talked about. Right in that moment, God says what he says in in Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. He blocks him. Now, here's the question. Before the fall, were they blocked from the tree of life? No. How many trees couldn't they eat from? One tree. Before the fall, they could eat from the tree of life. Why? Because they had the breath of life. The tree of life wasn't going to do anything different for them. They already had the breath of life. But after the fall, the result of their actions was that they lost the breath of life, that now, that day, you shall surely die. And what God says is, I am not going to allow you to come to this tree. And that's merciful. Why? Because if they came to the tree in their state of death spiritually, and they ate from that tree, then they would eternally live dead. So God blocks them until the time where we could have the bread of life, until the time where living water was given to us. And after that, what happens at the end of the book? We come back to the tree of life because we have living water, because we have eaten the bread of life. So we see there that cause and effect there. But we can keep on going. In in Isaiah, our passage, this portion is in Isaiah 6. But the first five chapters of Isaiah is God continually calling Israel, Hey, I've called you. I've pursued you. And they keep on rejecting him until finally Isaiah sees the glory of God. And he humbles himself before God and he says, I am a man of unclean lips. Who am I? And God brings the coal, and, 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 and the angels bring the coal, and he is atoned. He is made clean. And then he is sent out to, the, 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 to Israel to tell them what we read here in our passage. But that's after all the other things that happen. In Romans, the Romans has this idea. If, if Romans 1, verses 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about is God is clearly seen. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Later it says that God therefore gave them over to their desires. Again, that cause is their rebellion, and the result was he darkened their hearts. He gave them over. In the Gospel of John, we've seen this. John, at the very beginning, in John chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And it doesn't get better as we continue reading through John. The Jews doubted him. They questioned him. They tried to arrest him. They tried to stone him. Right now, and where we are, they're, try- they're plotting to kill him. Even in the context around our passage, we see their rejection. In verse 37, though that he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe. Later, we're also going to see in verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken with judge will judge him on the last day. We can see throughout Scripture this view of this cause and effect that those who reject God, the result is a hardened heart. 
that those who walk in darkness will remain in darkness. Now that's the view that we're more comfortable with. It's, it's, an, it's a very nice cause and effect that we like. But look at the words in our text. Look at the purpose clauses in our verses. So that the word might not be fulfilled. Therefore, they could not believe. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart, lest they see and turn and be healed. As much as the first view is biblical, it's lacking. We can't explain these verses just by seeing it as a consequence of their rejection. The second view is not a result of rejection, but, be, but deterred by design. That God had a plan, that God ordained for it to be this way. They were deterred by design. That view is that the cause then is God ordained that their hearts would be hardened. The effect was then that they rejected him because they could not believe. Now this is also, we see biblical support for this. Think of the story of in Exodus with Pharaoh. That God told in, in, in um, Exodus 4.22 that he would harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would be glorified. Not he, Pharaoh, that God would be glorified. Over and over again in Exodus, it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardening, hardened. We see this example in, in Romans 9 of Esau and Jacob. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. We can see this example in the Old Testament with all the other nations. That there were times in which God's word was kept from other nations. This is the view that's really hard for us, but it's true. You can't get around this. We can't receive the sovereignty of God's election and salvation without also recognizing his sovereignty and condemnation and damnation. You can't pick and choose. You can't say, I believe God's sovereignty and election, but I don't believe in God's sovereignty for condemnation. I believe God's sovereignty for salvation, but I don't want to believe in God's sovereignty for damnation. So you see these cause and effects, this fault line between two views. On one side, hey, the cause is that they rejected. The result was that he hardened their hearts. On the other view, no, the cause was he hardened their hearts. The result was they rejected him. So which one is it? What's the biblical view? Because we're looking here and we're like, man, it kind of looks like there's both sides here in the Bible. Well, that's because there, there are, there is both sides in the Bible. It's both. Were they hardened because they rejected? Yes. Did they reject because they were hardened? Also yes. For us, this is a difficult concept for us to think about because for us, the whole cause and effect line, timeline it is limited to our timeline, to the way we see time. See, for us, when you, if I were to say what came first, the chicken or the egg, and I say both, I'm just avoiding the question. I'm like, I, I don't really know, so I'm just going to get away from it. And so it can seem like when I'm saying what came first, God's hardening or their rejection, and I'm like, no, it's both. 
It can seem like we're avoiding the question, but that's because we're putting a limitation on God that we have. See, God isn't limited to a timeline like we are. God is outside of time. God is beyond this. God is not limited to the way that we think. And I'm not saying, oh, that God's breaking laws of logic here. God is consistent. And what he is doing here fits perfectly. The issue that we're talking about is divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which has been a discussion as long as there has been the topic of theology. How those perfectly work out, you're not going to get that answer this morning. But they do work out. It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. The Jews' heart, hearts were hardened not only as a result of their rejection, they were also deterred by design. This is something that humanly we struggle with, but it's true. In his plan, there is no contradiction for both God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together. So then how is God sovereign over unbelief, both through human responsibility and through his personal sovereignty in ordaining unbelief? Now maybe you you got lost a little bit there. Maybe you've stuck around with me and, and you understand the logic of this, but the implications of this are the part that really cause us to choke. Because then we look at the rest of verse 40. They could not believe because he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Wait, did I read that right? He has blinded them lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Are unbelievers victims of sovereignty? Are unbelievers then, therefore, they're, they're collateral damage? They're victims of God's sovereignty in ordaining for this to be the case? Again, this is the hard question. And, and essentially, what we are asking when we talk about victims of sovereignty is the question, is God actually just? Is what he is doing actually justice? Thankfully, the answer for that question is, the question is asked in another place in Scripture. Go ahead and turn uh, to Romans 9. Turn over to Romans 9. And now, we are not going to, we don't have the time to go through all of this. What I would encourage you as you are, if you're struggling with this whole concept of what we're talking about, I would encourage you to study Romans 9 through 11. We're going to touch on a few elements here, but really, so many of the questions that we are asking, the answers are found there. But looking at 9, verse 14, what the question that when we're talking about victim of sovereignty, the question we are asking is God just. So this is what it says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. It's not a matter of injustice. It's a matter of mercy. See, when we're talking about this, when we're talking about punishment, there is no punishment. There is no condemnation. There is no wrath that can be shown to man that is not just. For us to claim that God is acting with injustice towards us is to claim that we deserve something better than what we're receiving. This is something that is so hard for us to understand because we do two things that are wrong. We diminish God's holiness and God's glory and we elevate our own righteousness. The reason that we look and we say, no, it's not just to send people to hell is because we don't understand the depth of our depravity and the majesty of his glory. To understand the fall and what happened when humanity rebelled against God and rejected an eternal and holy God and said, we do not want your glory, we want our glory. If you don't get that concept, which is a very hard concept, I'm not saying blaming you and saying, oh, I can't believe you don't get this. This is something we all struggle with. And it's something that we can only get the barest understanding of how high he is and how deep our depravity is. But if we don't attempt to understand that, then we're going to look at God as doing something that is wrong. And we're going to say, you are acting out of injustice. injustice. But he's not. It's mercy. Why? Because everything that he is doing is an act of mercy. See, where it goes then is in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why are you blaming Pharaoh? Why are you doing that? For who can resist his will? You're the one that chose to do this. And this is the humility that we have to have when we're having this discussion. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? This is hard. But this is God's right. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? This is the right view. The right view is that there is a common grace. There is a mercy that is shown all humanity. Every moment that you have not spent in hell is mercy. The fact that people still go to hell is not God being unjust. The fact that they weren't in hell to begin with is his mercy. What if he endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? The presupposition of victims of sovereignty is that there are those who, if they had been given the choice, would have chosen chosen a different path. That's not true. 
There is no one who went to hell saying, oh, I would have chosen God if I had just been given the chance. I wanted God. I wanted to believe, but God forced me to go to hell. That is a lie. That is not to say there are not many who go to hell wanting to go to heaven. Millions of people go to hell wanting heaven. It's not an, an element of wanting heaven. What they don't want is God. They go to hell because they can't imagine and they don't desire a heaven that includes God. So this idea of victims of sovereignty, no, this is where the human responsibility part comes in. That we are culpable for our actions. And Paul later in, verse, in chapter 11 is going to give more reason of why exactly there was a partial, partial hardening of Israel. And so we're not going to get into that right now. But if you want to understand, wait, but why? Why were the Jews stopped? Read Romans 11. Go through that, and that, that's where you'll find the answer. If you want to talk about it, we can. But if we come back to our text, then, we have an example of what those who are not victims of sovereignty, where we go on, and it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah had the right response. He humbled himself. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I'm, I'm going to share with you my view of this verse, and there are people that disagree with this view. Some people look at this and say, okay, there's the negative. Hey, they could not believe. Oh, but, but here's a positive. Nevertheless, some of the authorities did believe. There's the good. I, I don't think that that's what John's doing. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but did they actually? One of the things that John has done in the book is he's challenged the whole idea of nominal belief. Of belief that is not genuine. If you go back to John 2, 23, uh, many of those who saw his signs believed in him, but Christ on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. Their belief not genuine. Later in John 8, where Pastor Billy preached through this, um, at the end in verse 30, it says that many believed, but then the next part it says, if you truly believed, my disciples do my commandments. They do what I say. And then later in that passage, they say, no, but we're children of Abraham. And, and Jesus says to the people who believed, you're not children of Abraham, because if you were children of Abraham, you would love me. You're children of your father, the devil. I don't think that that's how he describes Christians. And so John has already presented this idea of people who believed, but not really. So what are the clues in our passage? Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They believed, but not actually. Think about the story of the blind man which is the last time that it talked about being put out of the synagogue, where the blind man's parents would not say anything about Jesus because they didn't want to be put out. Did that stop the blind man? Nope, the blind man is proclaiming it all over the place and saying this is who Jesus is. He confessed it. In John eleven forty five, you see the crowd, some of the crowd saw what Jesus did with Lazarus and confessed him. Others went and told the Pharisees, and then in 1217, what we saw is that they continually bore witness. They continued to say it. They confessed Christ. 
This is what Romans 10, verse, verse 8 through 10 says. But what does it say? The word is near you, which has some, a lot of cool implications for us with the gospel of John of knowing who the word is. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. These men aren't doing that. They're refusing to confess out of fear. And then it says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What we just saw is what is the mark of a true disciple? You will follow me. You will be where I am. And the path that Jesus says that on is the path of rejection and crucifixion. That's not the path of loving the glory of man, that you will lose your life. If you love your life, you will lose it. But if you hate your earthly life, you will gain eternal life. But the clearest example is John 5, uh, verses 42 to 44, which say, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? What glory are they seeking? The glory from one another. And Jesus asks, how can you believe if that's the glory you're seeking? This is where we come back to the victims of sovereignty. They wanted to believe, but were they willing to believe to the point where they would seek God's glory instead of their own? No, they, they wanted heaven. They wanted the promises. But what did they really want? their own glory. And for people who believe, but not a true belief, and go to hell, it's not because, well, I tried, but God kept me from it and blocked me. No, it was a choice. There was something that they loved greater. That's a warning for all of us, which is not to say that there are not times where we do not seek our glory more than we seek God's glory. And I'm not saying that you lose your salvation, but if that is the pattern of your life, is your faith genuine? Now, we're going to go quickly through this last portion. Because in the last portion, then we have the question is, does God's sovereignty contradict Christ's mission of salvation? Is the Father the one who condemns and then Jesus is the one who saves? Is there a division? Kind of like how we talked about these two different views and we saw them as kind of contradicting and then, no, they're actually together. Is that what's happening with the Father and the Son as well? That the Father is, is wrath and, and it's justice and he's going to condemn and harden hearts. And yet there's, here's Jesus, humble and meek, gentle and lowly, and he's calling them and saying, no, please believe. I, I, and I need to save you before my, my Father hardens your heart. Is there a contradiction between the Godhead? No, because look at what Jesus is doing in the last portion. Now, understand that the quotes from Isaiah are ones that John has supplied, right? These weren't things that were said out loud. This is John's commentary on this. But that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't know these. We're meant to see the connection between these things. Who best knew the prophecies, the sovereignty of God regarding both saved and unsaved? Jesus Christ. So what did he do? What did he do? Fatalism? I mean, my, my dad's going to do whatever he's going to do, so it doesn't really matter what I do. I have my own mission. I want to save people. God, you know, my, my dad wants to condemn people, but, I mean, we'll see who can go faster. No. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me 
believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. This isn't my mission. This is our mission. God's work of of unbelief, of, of ordaining that, is not contradictory to the salvation. And part of why they were kept from belief was precisely for salvation. Because Christ needed to die. To to go away from works of the law into works of grace, which is only his work. Righteousness through grace. Here's the question, though, right? Because when we're talking about this injustice, who would be the only one who could actually claim that an injustice was done to him? Jesus. But he chose It wasn't injustice that was enacted on him. Anything else that happens to all of us, any suffering, that's still justice. But what happens to Jesus is a sacrifice. It's a choice. He's the only one that could claim that. But the fact that he goes and dies on the cross for our sins is why we have any hope. He cries out, whoever believes in me, not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into this world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And we're not going to go into these because we've already preached through all of these things. This is a recap of the things we've already talked about. What judges them? The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Again, who does he link this all to? For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And what is the commandment that that the Father gives? And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. There is no contradiction between the ministry of Christ and the work of the Father. Does that mean that we're always going to understand what he's doing, his sovereignty over both belief and unbelief? No, we're not going to always understand that. That's why the response to this is trust. That's what what Paul says. That's where where so often when we come to the issues of sovereignty, the, the, the exclamation from there is an exclamation of praise. This is just one of those asides that if you uh, are in theological conversation groups or if you go to a Christian school or if you go to any of these things, when we're talking about sovereignty, if the result of the discussion of your, about sovereignty is debate, and not doxology, you've missed the path. If the result is we're going to debate this, we're going to argue about this, and we're going to be angry, you have missed the purpose. The purpose is doxology. If you look at the end of Romans 11, where, Jesus, where Paul has just talked about this great passage of all the things that, that of sovereignty, this is what he says. 
Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who, or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you keep seeing this concept of glory pop up when we're talking about sovereignty? That's the result of when we're talking about sovereignty. It's his glory. It should be glory in, his dis- in the discussion of sovereignty. It should be glory in our salvation. It should be glory even through condemnation. God is glorified even when people go to hell. But the other response then is that you should have faith, not fatalism. Christ knows who's going to pick him. And does he just say then, you know what? I'm not, not going to talk to anyone. God's going to pick, and he's going to do that. No, again, one of the patterns that we see with sovereignty, with election, is always the proclamation of the gospel. Those things go together. If we go too far one way and say, well, it's all sovereignty, we don't need to proclaim because it's all there. But if we go the other way and we say, no, it's all proclamation, and then we're looking at a humanistic view, it's all me. It's not. God uses us. Proclaim his word. Christ proclaims his word. And here's here's the challenge that I want to give to you. When we're talking about results, often what we think about results is, okay, my evangelism was successful. If God then uses my evangelism to call the individual so that they would turn and believe and then become saved and he is glorified in him, that's the way that it's successful. That's true. But the other way in which it is successful is if God uses your word, your evangelism, to harden their heart. Both of those are part of God's sovereignty. Christ proclaimed his message, and it was not a failure that people had their hearts hardened from hearing Jesus Christ. Obedience. That's what we're called to, proclaim the message. We're also then just called to praise. Faith, not fatalism, obedience. That like Jesus, we would cry out, and you can look at the end of our passage and just follow out, and I'm going to just change some of the words so that it's a more of an application for us So as we follow the example of Christ. Whoever believes, this is starting in verse 44, whoever believes the gospel does not believe in us, but believes in the one who has sent us. Whoever sees Christ in us sees the power of the one who sent us. Let us shine the light of Christ before men so that they might not remain in darkness. Many will hear the words of truth and reject them. We are not the judges. God has not kept us in this world to pass judgment on the world around us. His word is what passes judgment. The ones who reject Christ and do not receive the words we proclaim have a judge. Christ's word will judge them on the last day. We do not speak of our own authority. We proclaim the word of God under his commandment. His words we proclaim. His words we speak. For his words are of eternal life. Therefore we proclaim the word of God. Man's unbelief remains under God's sovereignty and does not discredit nor contradict Christ's mission of salvation. As the worship team comes up, what we have is the blessing of knowing that God is fully in control. He is not just in control of the good things. He is absolutely in control. 
And as hard as those things can be, our response to those is to trust him, is to praise him, and it's to obey him. Man's unbelief remains under God's sovereignty and does not discredit nor contradict Christ's mission of salvation. Please stand as we sing together.